Romans chapter 6, verses 19 to 23. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit which leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal grace, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and, and uh, we thank you for the chance to gather freely uh, in our country to worship you. And we give you praise uh, for that. And we give you thanks for that. And I pray that we would make ourselves a, a people who are attentive to your word, uh, that your spirit would stir up in us a heart for your word, that we would be both hearers of your word, but also doers of your word, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be moved to respond that we would be removed, uh, that we would be moved to be concerned about our own lives, our own walk with you, that we would respond in in holiness, and that you would cultivate us in us fruit and growth in in sanctification. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Our main point this morning is going to be simply this: as a believer. Sanctification is necessary. As a believer, sanctification is necessary. Now, there are different kinds of necessities. And this is true even in everyday life. Sometimes there's a necessity where you are told if you want something, you need to do something first. That would be one kind of necessity. So, for example, we work with our kids and try to get them to say, please. And we tell them, if you want something, you need to ask for it and you need to say, please. And sometimes, quite frankly, we will not actually give them something that we know that they want, that they're pointing to and they're saying, eh, 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 until they actually ask for it. And then sometimes, you've probably done this as a parent as well, you say, and what do you say? You know, they ask for it, and then they're like, please. And then you're like, well, please what? And then you go through this whole process. That's a, that's a kind of upfront necessity. Do this, and you will get this, or this will result. Uh, a second kind of necessity would be what you might call a consequent necessity. Something you do after the fact. Something having now realized and got what you wanted, you do something in response. So continuing with kind of our analogy, you might say to your child, it's necessary to say thank you. Now, if they don't say thank you, do you rip that thing that you just gave them away from them and say, haha, you didn't do it? No. But the response of thankfulness is a 
consequent necessity. Having what you have now, now this is how you should respond. This is what is expected of you. We expect our children to say thank you. But there are two different types of necessity in that respect. And so when we say, as a believer, sanctification is necessary, we are talking about a consequent necessity. Something that happens after the fact. Something that flows from who you already are in Jesus Christ. And we want to be really clear, we are not saying you live a good life or live try to live a holy life in order to get salvation. It's not an upfront necessity. We're saying it's an after-the-fact necessity. As a believer, sanctification is necessary. It's the good and right and true and loving response that we give to God because of the work that He has done in us. And we're going to go through and show how Paul uh, lays this out. As a believer, sanctification is necessary. So number one, to show sanctification is necessary, Paul uses the analogy of slavery and freedom. Now, he's been using this analogy already, and you see it all the way back up in um, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then freedom in verse 18. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is already using this and he will continue this analogy. But he says in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul tells us he is speaking using a human analogy. And while this analogy uh, fits the purpose of what Paul is trying to say, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is what God would have us understand, just recognize it's also an analogy. You might think in the ancient world and and even in the modern world, slave masters were cruel and harsh. When God talks about us being a slave to him and a slave to righteousness and obedience, God is not cruel and harsh. He is kind and loving and gentle and generous, and he has given us this free grace. So what I'm trying to say is don't make this analogy walk on all fours, so to speak. Paul is telling us it's a human analogy, and he's using it because of your natural limitations, which you could actually translate this because of your weakness of your flesh. Now, in Paul, if you if you follow how he uses the word flesh uh, throughout his writings, he uses it in a couple different ways. Sometimes he'll talk about it in a very neutral way. Jesus Christ became flesh. It's just speaking of him having a human body uh, without sin. So Paul will actually say he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning he had all the humanity that you and I have, but without sin. Sometimes Paul will use flesh to speak of who we are before we are saved. The flesh has been crucified, the old self, who we are in that sinfulness. And so there he's not just talking about uh, the physical body, but, but the corrupted nature that we have. And sometimes it just talks about natural human bodily 
limitations. I'm sure some of us, as we get older, we are reminded more and more how much of a natural limitation human flesh is. Your knees uh, start to ache. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting into that sort of, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm old yet, but, but certain things start aching now that used to never ache, you know. Uh, you could, I could go out and I could be active and play volleyball. And the next day you wake up and you jump out of bed and you're ready to go. And now I'm just like kind of roll out of bed. I make sure that nothing is still sore. And sometimes it is. And, and, and we have just a natural human limitation. We just have natural limitations of our minds. We don't understand everything that God understands. We don't know everything that God knows. And and we never will know everything that God knows. How can the, the finite person, even in our resurrected bodies, how can the finite resurrected person know all that an infinite God knows? And so Paul is saying here, just because of your limitations, because of your, your weaknesses, and, and it's not necessarily that, that the Romans, I, I don't think the church in Rome had any huge major problems like the church at Corinth, that they were stuck in some kind of sin. It's just, I'm saying this to you because you are limited in our, we are limited in our capacity. And I'm using an analogy that you can understand to try to impress upon you just how important it is that you walk in righteousness and obey God. Paul has been answering the questions, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. So he's saying in effect, let me use an illustration that you can understand. It will press home the point. You and I do have human limitations, and even as believers, it still is within us the capacity to sin. And so he's pressing us. He's saying when you're a, a slave to something, you, you do what that master wants. You don't get a choice in the matter, so to speak. You just yield yourself. And Paul is saying we need to yield ourselves to God and to his righteousness. So Paul will say, in effect, who was I? Look at verse 19 again. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now, let me just pause there. I know it's kind of in the middle of a sentence. But he's saying, this is who you were. This is how you lived. Each one of us as an unbeliever, before we received the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we were characterized by. Some of you can identify with this very easily. You were saved later in life. You had done things that you look back at and you're not proud of. Others of us, myself included, we have to remind ourselves. I grew up in a Christian home. And so it's very easy sometimes to be prideful and say, yeah, I grew up really good. But before I was saved, I was in this same boat. Now, I was not a four-year-old drug dealer and then got saved from a life of crime at the age of five or something like that. But, but I can remember, as a young person, lying to my parents, trying to pull the wool over their eyes. This is who we were. And what did we do? We, we presented ourselves to sin and we delighted in it and we enjoyed it and, and we had 
no compulsion to resist because we were enslaved to that sin, presenting ourselves to impurity and, and lawlessness that led to more lawlessness. I don't, I don't think he means just criminal lawlessness, but I think he means lawlessness against God. When we were walking in sin, uh, rarely do we just sin once. But sin compounds itself, and one sin leads to another. Uh, did you ever tell a lie and then do something to, to cover up that lie? And then maybe you have to tell another lie to cover the first lie, and it snowballs. I can remember as a young person being, being scared of getting caught because I knew I would be in trouble, and so I tell a lie to cover the lie, and then I have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and lawlessness leads to lawlessness is what Paul is saying. But then he, he transitions and he says, but who are you now? So this is half a sentence. For just as you once did this, he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There, there is a similarity here and there is a difference. The sameness is so as you presented... Now present. The difference is who and what did you present to? What did you offer yourself to as an unbeliever? What did you thrive in? What did you, for the most part, enjoy doing? Sinning. Living in sin. No one had to to twist our arm to sin. It was a, a joy. It gave us a pleasure. Even if it was only for the moment. It was, in some sense, addicting. It gave us that rush. Why? Because we were dead in our sins and we, we thrived in it. How many times does even an unbeliever who knows they're doing something wrong feels like they can't stop and they're compelled to do it because even though the consequences after the fact can be disastrous, in that moment, they delight in it. That's what we were presenting ourselves to. That's what we were enslaved to. Paul says now it's different. It's the same in that you, you always are presenting yourself to one thing or the other, depending uh, if you're an unbeliever, your master is, is sin and disobedience. If you're a believer, your master is God and righteousness. And so now he's saying present yourself to who your master is. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We've been saying in Romans 6, and, and Paul has been continually saying, we are under a new master. We have a new Lord. Uh, I am not a slave to sin, but I am a slave now to righteousness. This is the, the interesting parallel here. I was a slave to sin and free to righteous, and now it's been reversed. I'm free from sin but I'm a slave to righteousness. And so Paul is countering that person that says, I am free in Christ. I can live however I want. Why don't I just go on sinning? Because God will forgive me anyways. Paul says, no. Yeah, you're free in Christ. But he's freed you to be a slave to righteousness and obedience. He is using this human analogy the gospel should and must bring a life of transformation. Notice Paul's connection here. Just as you once 
So now you used to present yourself as a slave to sin. You had no trouble following it and doing it. And we might even say it was natural. So now as a believer, you have been given the capacity to walk in the ways of God. And God is desirous of cultivating in you a heart where you desire to follow the Lord. It should become natural to respond in obedience and righteousness. Why? Because you are a slave. But a slave to a far, far better master. In the same way that it was natural to sin and you were compelled to sin as an unbeliever, now as a believer, it should be more and more natural to walk in righteousness. You should be compelled inwardly to do those things that you know to be right and good. Just as as an unbeliever you said, I don't think I can stop doing these sins. God wants us to grow in our holiness so much that we feel like, I just love doing righteousness. I don't want to stop. I love walking in the ways of God. I, I delight in obeying Him. Not only how much uh, easier in some ways that I'm not suffering just natural consequences of sin, but how much of a joy is it to know that I'm walking in the ways of my Heavenly Father, that I am an imitator of God in Christ. It should be that kind of intensity of compulsion. And I tell you that that can only be cultivated through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that can only be given to the life of the believer who has received the free gift of the forgiveness of sins. I remember a scenario uh, in in my own life, something that just kind of hit me. Uh, Someone that I looked up to, uh, my mentor actually, and many of you know it was uh, a man by the name of Pastor Calvin Reed. Uh, And I remember looking up to him and going, man, he's a great preacher and he was an intellect. And you guys in Sunday school were joking about my library. I I used to go into his office and and like drool over all of his books. And I, I really looked up to him. And I remember in one scenario where somebody else was talking about Pastor Reed. And, and they, they, you know, they probably were impressed by the things that I was impressed in, but they, they just kind of shook me to my core when they said, and he is so godly. Like, I would have said, yes, he's godly, but, but what uh, uh, compelled them, what appealed to them was that they just saw a man of God living his life. And, and it was one of those kind of things where, like Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. And they were saying, I want to follow that guy as that guy follows Christ. And, and that righteousness was compelling to them that, that I want to follow my Lord. And even saying, I see it in this person's example, that, that it just it, it called to them. It, it was kind of like a, a siren song where they were just hypnotized by it. And oh, that we would see the ways of God and, and be compelled and hypnotized and, and driven to righteousness to say, I'm a slave. And that's a good thing in this passage, to be a slave to righteousness. And so I think we can ask ourselves, Do I want to grow in holiness? 
Sometimes uh, as a Christian, we can get satisfied in what we have and take our eyes off of where we need to go. We have all the riches of God's grace. We have the forgiveness of sins. I mean, amen, rejoice, thank God. But also don't take your eyes off of where he wants you to go, how he wants you to grow, how he wants you to obey. Is there some area in your life where you can be more obedient to God and pursue that? Not because you're going to earn your salvation. You're certainly never paying God back. But it's out of an overflow of understanding the riches of His grace. How dare we think we understand the riches of God's grace if we sit there and say, I am free. I will live however I want. That is not the call of the Christian. Second, this morning, to show sanctification is necessary We see two kinds of fruit that lead to two different outcomes. So we're breaking this down now. This is who you were. What did this lead to? This is who you are now. What does that lead to? He says in verse 20 that we were a slave to sin and and free to righteousness. Verse 20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Slavery to sin is another way of describing ourselves as dead to sin. And a slave could not liberate themselves just as a a person dead in sin needs the redeeming grace of God through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ to come into the life. The person has no choice but to follow their master. And Paul then says, when we are a slave to this sin, we were free in regards to righteousness. Now, what does Paul mean by this? I think one temptation would be to say, uh, he's one one wrong way of understanding this might be to think uh, that he's saying, well, they're under no obligation at all, as if the, the Ten Commandments don't apply to them. No, the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, those things that we should do, we are still accountable to them. Paul says in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. So Paul is not saying you're not accountable as, as a believer, but I, uh, excuse me, as an unbeliever, but also an unbeliever, they're going to have no compulsion to do what's right. They have no pressing weight of righteousness that they feel over them. No Holy Spirit convicting them regularly and inwardly walking with them. They are not in communion and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, they are free from the obligations of righteousness. Should they do what's right? Absolutely. But they have no compulsion internally to do it. A simple way of putting this is you should expect unbelievers to sin. I mean, it's horrible when we see people trapped in sin. And we should have compassion and we should have mercy. But at the same time, We shouldn't totally be surprised when an unbeliever sins. Sometimes we can be a little pharisaical about it as Christians. We can be a little like clucking our tongues and I I can't believe they live that way. You can say at the same time it's wrong and they shouldn't do that and say, but I understand why. Because they're dead in their sins. 
I think you can even take it one step farther and say, that's who I used to be. Not in a prideful way, not in an arrogant way, but in an understanding that when I am a slave to my sins, when I am dead in my sins, I need God's grace to liberate me. And until he does, I am free from righteousness in the sense of I just don't feel it to be compelling upon my life. But when Christ changes us, all of that changes. Notice then the fruit of sin is death. But what, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. This is, this is kind of foreshadowing what Paul is going to say in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. The payment, the things that we deserve from our sin is eternal death. Paul uses a different analogy, not a wage, but fruit. You are producing this fruit on this tree. And, and what does this fruit lead to? What does partaking it lead to? What does having it and, a, and abounding in this fruit leads to? It leads to your eternal death. Matthew 7, 17 and 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So if the fruit on the tree in the life that you are living is wicked and sinful and you are abounding in this, what is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying? It's a bad tree. And he says, this, this fruit that you have, this manifestation of what your life is as a slave to sin, what does that lead to? Jesus says, everyone who sins is what? A slave to sin. And what's the outcome of that? Paul says right here, death. The end of of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, meaning his sinful flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. Another way of describing death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. What results from being a slave to sin? The fruit of sin. And, and if you are partaking and abounding in the fruit of sin, where is the end of your life going to go? Eternal death. Paul is describing the unbeliever. But do you see why it's so important that the believer walk in a manner worthy of God? That we walk in righteousness. Not because we're trying to get salvation, but because it's the fruit of having salvation. Again, it's that necessary consequence of being a believer. Notice also, I think it's fascinating what Paul says here, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
Paul's talking to believers here. And he's saying, you look back at your life and you know those things that you were doing and you know where it was leading. Sin was leading you to death. You knew at some point in your life that, that you were under the condemnation of the Lord and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and He saved you. And now you look back and you say, you know, I'm ashamed of some of those things. I regret how I lived before I was a Christian. I can look back now and say, I know, I really know how wrong it was. And maybe even some of your regret is at the time that you were doing it, you didn't know how wrong it was. Or you delighted even in how wrong it was. You figured you were getting away with it. You were living the, the fast life, so to speak. One of the marks, I think, of sanctification, of, of growing in our holiness, of growing closer to God, is we look back at who we used to be and we say, you know, I regret. I'm ashamed. Maybe as part of your testimony, you, 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 you will talk about it. But you don't brag about that stage of your life anymore. You don't chuckle and say, yeah, look what I was doing. It was awesome. You say, oh, if I had to do it over again, I wish I would have become a Christian sooner so I wouldn't have gotten trapped in that. It's good in some ways to feel that sense of shame. It's, it's a mark of the Holy Spirit. Because you know when you were in that life beforehand, it didn't bother you. And now you look at it and it does bother you. So it's normal to look back at sin and, and, and that we committed and say, you know, I regret it. I'm ashamed. What's it say about the Christian life then? If I have no sense of guilt or shame or regret even, if I'm not bothered by some of those sins that I did before I was a believer. Now let me, let me kind of try to balance this very carefully. On the one hand, we should look at these things and they should at times bother us. And we should have some regrets and say, you know, you, maybe you tell your kids, don't do what I did when I was your age. And here's why. And I wasn't a believer. And you can talk about them honestly. At the same time, don't wallow in shame and guilt. You know, there is a type of person. Uh, there are two types of people. And I'm big generalization here. But there are two types of people. One, that they look at their sin and it never bothers them. That's a problem. That's a problem. There is another type of person that is so sensitive to their sin, they are immediately overwhelmed by their guilt whenever you talk about the shame of sin. I mean, just incapacitated by the weight that they feel. Remember that Christ has taken that burden away. That you are no longer guilty of your sins and that you are free. That He has removed the stain of sins. And so on the one hand, you look back and you say, I regret those things. On the other hand, don't let the evil one tempt you and destroy your fellowship with God so that He's constantly saying, um, do you really think God loves you? Look at how vile you were. Don't let Satan tempt you with that shame. Notice then as we continue to move through the passage, being free in Christ also means producing fruit that leads to eternal life. This is what Paul says. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. 
Paul lays out here what should be the normal process of the Christian life. God has saved you. God has done a work in you. The free gift of salvation is given to you. It is not because of any works. You didn't do something to get it. All you did was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did all the work on the cross. But he also, now that you are a new tree, new fruit should begin to grow. And what does this fruit lead to? We call it sanctification. Sanctification simply means a growing in holiness. It means walking in the ways of God. It, and, and we don't mean this in a, a legalistic way. But you think of things like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, self-control. Paul says against such things there is no law. Just all of these things that... That, that should begin to, to grow on you now because you are a new tree. Fruit doesn't grow on the tree and then change what the tree is. Like if, if we went out to the tree out there, which I think is a crab apple tree, and if we all brought a bunch of bananas and taped a bunch of bananas to the branches, would it suddenly become a banana tree? No. It's still a crab apple tree. But the fruit manifests itself based on what the tree is. The fruit of the Christian life should manifest itself because of who you are. And it leads to your sanctification. You will, over time, start to look more and more like Jesus. And, and by the way, you know we're all at different stages sometimes of this process. And we all are struggling with different things. So we need to be really careful how we look at other people in their sanctification process. And it's so easy sometimes to look at someone else and judge them for some kind of sin they're in. And, and you don't know how far they've come in sanctification. You might, maybe you're with somebody and they're a Christian and, and a swear word flies out. And you're just like, <gasps> but you don't know what kinds of things they used to do before they were a Christian that God has been liberating them from. I mean, it's not right that we, we swear, and we certainly don't condone that, encourage that. But keep in mind that the fruit and the growth takes place over time. Think about where you are now as a Christian. And if we were to go back in your Christian life five years, ten years, twenty years ago when you first got saved or whatever it might be, where were you in your sanctification, in those Christian habits. And when I say Christian habits, I don't mean like, you know, wearing a tie to church on Sunday or a bow tie. Or, we're not talking about outward things. We're talking about the inward things that manifest themselves in our habits and our behaviors, in our kindness, in our love, in our compassion, in our mercy. All of those things. And Paul says the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end leads to eternal life. Think about that for a minute. The end goal of sanctification is eternal life. Now, Paul is really clear. We're not earning eternal life by our sanctification. But notice the parallel. If you are an unbeliever, the fruit you have, what's the consequences of your sin? Death. It's the exact same words here when he says its end is eternal life. 
the normal path that the believer walks in this life is to be one of ongoing sanctification. That doesn't mean at times you won't stumble and fall. Sometimes it'll be two steps forward and you'll feel like you went three steps backwards. Uh, in, in that way, it can kind of be like the stock market. You know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. But if you invest in the stock market long term, they tell you, you know, it goes up. Long. I'm not giving you investment advice here, so just, you know. But, but long term, it goes up. The trend in your Christian life goes up. The sanctification, even when you have that market crash, goes up. You get back on your feet. You repent of things. You, you dedicate yourself to the Lord again. You, you commit yourself. You present your members, as it says, to walking in righteousness. But notice, sanctification is a necessity. Its end, the goal of it, is eternal life. And I love how Paul comes along and in verse 23 he said, you know, to say that this is our third point to say sanctification is necessary does not mean salvation is earned. It's absolutely necessary, but it's a, as I've been saying, a, a consequent necessity. Just as you teach your, your children, it's necessary to say thank you. But you still give them good things, and sometimes they even forget to say thank you. In the same way, sanctification is that consequent necessity the fruit needs to come because of who you are and how have you become who you are the free gift of salvation through the grace of god so paul says in verse 23 for the wages of sin is death this is what i deserve for my sins this is what i get paid when i sin and live in sin and am an unbeliever and do not come before the cross of Christ and believe in Him. But Paul does not say that the reverse is true. He does not say that the wages of good deeds or the wages of sanctification or the wages of holiness is eternal life. He has described it as a different kind of necessity. And so he says, the wages of sin is death. This is what each one of us deserves. But through believing in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of God's grace, and that's eternal life. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a gift, not a wage. And so while sanctification is a good and necessary consequent as the fruit of the Christian life, being a Christian... And receiving eternal life is from the free gift of God's grace. Let me just try to be even more clear. Salvation is never given to you based on how you have lived. And salvation is never given to you based on how you will live. You don't contribute anything Accept your sins and your wretchedness. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He washes all that away. He brings you into union with Christ. He crucifies the old self so that you are dead to sin and alive to God. 
You go from being a slave to sin and free from righteousness to being free in Christ and a slave to God in obedience. Let me try to ask you this morning just a couple questions or make a couple statements of application. First, I hope this morning that you will rejoice in the gift of the grace of God. As you think about even your sanctification, sometimes in in the Christian life, it it can become a, a temptation to be prideful. Well, look at me and look at how far I've come. And even, you know, look at what God has done in my life. Thank goodness I'm not like that new baby Christian over there who still struggles with his temper. No, don't think like that. Rejoice in the grace of God. What makes you different? from the unbeliever trapped in their sins and a slave to the sin? Nothing. The grace of God worked in your life. What did you do to contribute to it? Nothing. Rejoice. Rejoice in the gift of the grace of God. Sin's curse is removed. I am free. There is no guilt, no condemnation. He's given me a new heart, the Holy Spirit. How awesome it is to have a new and wonderful, gracious, loving master, my Lord and my God. Second, ask yourself this. Does the free gift of God's grace motivate me to walk and follow God? If it doesn't, why not? Do you understand the, the freeness of God's grace? Sometimes the temptation is to say, like Paul was responding to here, well, if I'm free, I can live however I want. I say to you, you don't understand the freedom of the grace of God. You're under an obligation now. Keep in mind, Jesus is the one who says, you know, my burden is light, my, my yoke is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But you now have an obligation. Let me use an example for you. Christ is like a conquering king. His army has invaded. He's destroying the enemy of sin and death. And he's burst into the slave holds where we are and liberated us and taken the chains away and freed us. And, And we should not only be rejoicing, but we should be like, I want to enlist in this army. Of course I want to follow Christ. Of course I want to walk in His ways. Look at what He did for me. I had no hope. The obligation isn't meant to be oppressive, but it is meant to press upon you the importance of walking in this way. Paul doesn't just say, go out and live however you want. He says, no, you're a slave to something new. Does the free gift of God's grace motivate me to walk and follow God? As you look at your life, is there an area or one particular area or something that you need or somewhere where you need to present yourself as a slave to righteousness? Is there some struggle with sin that you're fighting? Something that you're giving into regularly and you need to say to God, I need to repent. And confess this. I need to, to walk in a manner appropriate of a Christian. Maybe it's a public sin. People know about it. Maybe it's a private sin that no one else sees you doing. And you need to remind yourself and hear through the Holy Spirit today, 
You're a slave to righteousness now. Please don't live like this. Come back and repent and make a fresh commitment and, and maybe get help from brothers and sisters in Christ where we bear one another's burdens. Or if it's really serious, maybe get some counseling or come and talk to me or one of the elders. But you're a slave now to a new master. Is there some area where you've been ignoring God's conviction? Something that you're secretly ashamed of that you do? And I'd encourage you to confess and repent and walk with Christ. Is there some area maybe you're resisting doing something good? Maybe it's not a a sin proper in the sense that you know that you're doing something bad. But maybe God's put a burden on you to do something good. And it's a sin that you've been resisting in it. You're not yielding to Him in some area. Ask yourself this. How can I be a better slave to God and righteousness? How can I show a deeper appreciation for the free grace of salvation that God has given me. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we often don't think of ourselves as slaves to you, and perhaps we even uh, bristle at times when we think of that. We, We like the other analogies that you give us in Scripture, the freedom, the adoption that we have, the the, the heirs of the riches of, of all the spiritual treasures. All of those are wonderful analogies too, spoken and given to us through the Holy Spirit so that we might grasp our salvation. But Lord, you also give us this analogy, this human way of speaking, that we are slaves, that we are under a new master, that we don't get to pick and choose what our obligations are when it comes to righteousness and, and walking in your ways. That we don't get to, to throw this off in our life and say, I'll wait till I'm farther along in my Christian life before I start yielding. But you impress it upon us now because you have transformed us and moved us from death to life and baptized us into Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have a genuine holiness, not a legalistic holiness, not a pharisaical holiness where we tout ourselves as better than others and say, thank God I'm not like that sinner, but a real spirit-driven, walking in love, compassion, bearing the image of Jesus Christ that we would look like Him more and more, not only individually, but also corporately as a church. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us.
Lord Jesus.